You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. And so the, the focus of our time together this morning is going to be on two to three things primarily. <coughs> and you'll have to just forgive me for the coughing. You know how that is <laughs> after effects of being sick. Um, we're going to focus on a couple of different things. First, uh, we're going to spend some time focusing on the doctrine of the Word of God. Okay, And, and then we're going to spend, after we've kind of set a foundation there, then we're going to take some time. We're going to examine Psalm 119. <coughs> so if any of you ever read Psalm 119, that should give you a moment to pause to think about how massive and big Psalm 119 is. And so that might... Uh, cause you to wonder how we're going to do that. Uh, and then third, kind of all the way throughout our time together, I want us to be thinking, how does Jesus bring um, all of that to life? When you're thinking about the doctrine of God's word, and you're thinking about Psalm 119, how does Jesus bring all of that to life? How does he embody everything we're going to talk about? And so uh, I think the best question to start off with would be this. When I say the doctrine of God's word, what comes to mind for you? Like, what does that actually mean when I use the term, the doctrine of God's word? Historically, when you look at different doctrinal statements, you might see something that says the doctrine of the scriptures. <coughs> Same thing. Um, I'm just using that phrase, the doctrine of God's word, to say the very same thing. But what do I mean when I say that, right? Uh, the word doctrine itself, in its most simplistic form, basically means teaching. And so if we know that, then the next question becomes, what do we actually teach here? What do we hold here in regards to God's word, right? To the scriptures. What do we actually hold to? What do we mean when we say that? What do we teach in regards to God's word? <coughs> well, here at the well, we are well, we're nine and a half well, over nine and a half years old as a church plant, right? And we are affiliated with a number of different uh, organizations, uh, church planting partners and denominations and networks. One of them that we're affiliated with is the Acts 29 Network. <coughs> and to be affiliated with those different denominations and those different networks, we have to affirm their doctrinal statements. And so you could go to our website, right? And you can go to the what we believe section. And you can go down to the bottom of the page. You can click on the images for those different denominations or networks. And, um, and you could find the doctrinal statements that we have affirmed. Um, this morning, I want to I kind of use the one from the Acts 29 network. It won't be on the screen for you. I'm just going to read through it real fast. So you can kind of get a sense of when, when I say the doctrine of God's word what I'm actually getting after. What have we affirmed? What do we believe? What do we teach? Well, here's what the Acts 29 uh, statement says. Listen to this. <coughs> the, we affirm the divine inspiration, truthfulness, and authority of both Old and New Testament scriptures in their entirety as the only written word of God without error in all that it affirms and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We also affirm the power of God's word to accomplish his purpose of salvation. This message of the Bible is addressed to all men and women. For God's revelation in Christ and in scriptures is unchangeable. Through it, the Holy Spirit still speaks today. He illumines 
the minds of God's people in every culture to perceive its truth freshly through their own eyes and thus discloses to the whole church evermore of the many colored wisdom of God. So that's the big, bold statement on the doctrine of God's word <coughs> from the Acts 29 network that we absolutely and wholeheartedly affirm. It's a big mouthful, isn't it? Now, I, I would assume that there might be maybe three or four of us in the room that absolutely geek out over massive theological statements by show of hands, who's with me. Yeah, that's what I thought, three or four. The rest of us in the room are probably at this point kind of like, okay. Theological statements are important, right? Doctrinal statements are, are important. Um, everything that I have just communicated is important. But there's, I know there's not many of us that would maybe spend a lot of time parsing out every word in that statement to ensure that it's true. So what is the big mouthful that I just read, right? What did I actually just say? One of the ways that you maybe would hear me say this, just in kind of my own layman's terms, is as much as I actually have any layman's terms inside of me, uh, Probably goes something like this. I, I, you've probably heard me say that God's word is made up of 66 love letters, right? And maybe you've heard others say that. God's word, the Bible, this book I'm holding in my hand, it's more than just a book, right? Um, although culture around us, and truth be told, sometimes us, we treat this like it's no more than a book, like a little topical thing that I have a problem in my life and I open it and I look for God to fix that problem. Um, kind of a systematic study, right, of, of topical things. What does God say about this or that? Um, the reality is that uh, our Bibles, they're, they're cohesive. There are 66 love letters, right, written by 40-plus different authors, inspired by one person. His name is God, and um, written over the span of about 1,600 years. Uh, the fact that we stand here and hold this Bible in front of us is, is really is a miraculous thing if you do the geeked out theological study. Um, I like to say as well that when, when I look at the Bible, when I hold this Bible in my hand, what I know I'm holding is one cohesive storyline, right? It's written by God the Father. He loves us deeply. And, and it's really, the storyline is, is based around four different themes, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and, and glorification. <clears throat> uh, in short, uh, you know, God created us to be a certain way, and then we fell into sin, and, and then God uh, redeems us through the work of Jesus at the cross, and then we look forward to a future uh, eternal glorification in heaven, right? This is the, that's the, the major storyline of the Bible. This is why I say, uh, God's word. This Bible is 66 love letters, and they are actually, it's actually the words of God, right? And they're perfect, and they're true. The words contained in our Bibles, they're authoritative, you could say, in, in their description of who God is, uh, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do in the future, right, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So you think about all of what I've just said. That's, I'm just setting the foundation for that's the doctrine of God's word. This is what we teach about God's word. Very important to have that understanding and that doctrine in our minds 
uh, before we even head to Psalm 119. Um, this doctrine, I think, uh, is very much like a, a good set of, see, now I can't see. It's like a good set of prescription glasses. When you put that doctrine on as, as a set of prescription glasses, it helps you to see clearly. It helps you to read the Bible clearly when you have that foundational thinking. Um, without, a, without a clear and concise doctrinal statement, without those glasses on, then I think that when we would arrive at Psalm 119 here in a little bit, our understanding of it could actually take on just about any form <coughs> or interpretation that our sinful or, or self-centered desires would decide to take on, right? So I think before we even go to Psalm 119, the next question is, okay, is everything that I'm saying, is it actually true, right? Is, is this doctrine, as I'm communicating it to you guys, is it actually true? Does the Bible support what I've just said? Um, does the Bible affirm it? Is the prescription actually right? So what I want to do is just very briefly over the next few moments take a quick journey through a couple of passages of Scripture and just let's just ask that question. Is this doctrine true? Does the Bible affirm it? So let's look first at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. It should be on the screen in front of you as well. Here's what it says. It says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is just one foundational passage to the doctrine I've been communicating, right? What does this passage say? It teaches us that the Bible, I mean, it's the Bible talking about itself. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. And, and what, what we're hearing is that the Bible is simply not a creation of mere mortal men, Right? Um, the Bible is God's very own words. God's very own words written by men as the Holy Spirit enabled them to, as he breathed through them. Interesting that that word breathed is used because the word for spirit is ruah, or ruha, and it means breath. The Spirit of God is like the very breath of God, and so here we see that the Holy Spirit enabled human authors to write the Bible as he breathed through them. This is God's breathed out word. Now let me think about it this way, and you think about it this way with me too. <laughs> think about if what we have in front of us was actually less than God's perfect words written by the Holy Spirit through men, then what would you have, Right? You would just have a book. It may be a good book. It might have some decent wisdom in it, right? You might be able to apply some of the instructions in it to your life, maybe, some of it. Or it might just be good thought-provoking reading at that point. But if this book, if these Bibles are anything less than God's perfect words written by the Holy Spirit through men, then it's untrustworthy, uh, and it's open to a myriad of human interpretation. And that's been the problem since the Garden of Eden, right? Um, since the serpent, our, our enemy, God's enemy, the devil, began to question. What did he question? The trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say that? That was his question. 
So the fact that God's word is perfect according to this passage, according to 2 Peter, uh, the fact that God's word is perfect helps us, I think, to rest assured that God's promises can be taken to the bank, right? Because you think about it, God's word, I, I believe, is his promise. That's another way of thinking about God's word or summarizing this big doctrine. If you were going to summarize, if somebody were to ask you, what does the doctrine of God's word mean? Well, I think it means that God's word is his promise. And if it's anything less than perfect, trustworthy, authoritative, powerful, if it's anything less than God's actual perfect, true words, then his promise can't be trusted, right? But since it is his word, it is his promise, it's trustworthy, can be taken to the bank. Uh, turn with me now to, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 has something to say about this doctrine as well. Uh, here's what it says. It says, all scripture is once again breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that's a fascinating passage when you look at it, right? It's got a ton of, like, actionable words in it. Um, it's profitable, right? You've got teaching coming out of it. it, it it's reproof. Uh, it, it's, it's, cor it's correction for us. Uh, it trains us. We will be complete, equipped. Think about all those actionable words in terms of God's word. What I think the author is saying, if I were to summarize, is that God's word is the perfect tool. Think about it that way. Um, Donnie, Pastor Donnie, earlier was one of our sound panels fell off. Um, and it looked like one of the brackets on the back of it was uh, broken. Imagine, so Donnie was trying to nail the thing back on there and actually got it hung back up pretty, pretty straight. But um, what he needed was most likely a hammer <laughs> to hammer it all back into place. <coughs> I don't know if you've ever been working in your garage and you can't find a hammer. And so you start grabbing all sorts of things to, to hammer with. You know, I have, like my mom, when I was younger, she had this massive collection of vice grips. And so we use the back end of vice grips quite often to uh, uh, nail things in. And so sometimes you can kind of take tools that aren't meant for the job and make them work. And they can do kind of a pretty good job. But if you use the wrong tool <laughs> for a job, you can actually make a really big fat mess, right? So I remember the time I, we couldn't find any of my mom's big collection of vice grips, and so we decided to use the, uh, the back end of a screwdriver, and we're, we're trying to hammer this big nail. And so here I am, I'm holding, the, I'm holding the nail, and I'm hammering away, and it's not going anywhere. I'm hitting it harder and harder and harder. And pretty soon, you know, those, those screwdrivers, they have a plastic handle on them, and it hit the edge of it the wrong way, slipped off, and hit my finger. Now, now truth be told, you can still hit your finger with a hammer, um, but when you do it with a screwdriver that was never designed to be used for the purpose, you get my, my point, right? You can make a really big mess when you use the wrong tool for the wrong job. The second Timothy is teaching us that God's word is the right tool for the job. What's the job? The job is shaping and molding God's people, right? Shaping and molding God's people. If there were any errors in the Bible, if it, if it wasn't true, if it wasn't authoritative, powerful, all those things, trustworthy, we use big words like inerrant or is it infallible. We use these big theological words that basically mean it's trustworthy. It's perfect. There's no error in it. If, if, if all those things were not true, 
then it would not be the perfect tool for shaping and molding God's people, okay? Um, let me put it in a different illustration. If God's word is not what God's word says it is, then imagine using a plastic butter knife to cut through hardened steel. You'd get nowhere, would you? you get nowhere. God's word would be absolutely useless for what it says it's designed for. It would not deliver on its promise, the promise that it has right here. But God's word must be able to deliver on God's promises. Now, speaking of cutting, um, unlike a plastic knife and hardened steel, you might be familiar with Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 13 says this. It says, the word of God is living and active. Catch this. Sharper, not like a plastic butter knife. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The thing about all three of these passages that we're just skimming through is I would just love to just preach every nuance and word of them because they're so fascinating to me. And you think about, like for me, as a preacher, like my calling and my job, my responsibility, like I love God's word. Just love his word. Ever since I started following the Lord, it's one of the things I've, I've really deeply loved God's word. And so um, it would be fun actually, to spend more time on each of these verses. But when you think about what the Bible says in Hebrews, when you learn, you learn that God's word is the right tool, once again. It's the right tool for the job of making disciples who are being formed into the image of God. Why? Because it does exactly what it promises to do. What does Hebrews promise us that it will do? It will cut deeply. It acts like a mirror. It reveals things that we think are hidden. When we read God's word, <coughs> when we study God's word, it's the perfect tool for shaping, for molding us, for making us into disciples that are formed into the image of Jesus because it gets down into these like, deep, dark, dirty places of our hearts and our lives. And what it does is it, is it, it actually exposes like, like a shine a big light into a dark room. It exposes the darkest parts of us to him, our father, right? And it exposes those darkest parts of us to him. And what has he promised to do all throughout his word? He has promised to be able to heal and to restore what is sick and sinful and broken inside of us. So see, this is the doctrine of God's word kind of fleshed out, not just in this real heady theological commentary sort of a way, but in more of an applicable way, I think. This is why the doctrine of God's word is so important. And on top of that, God's word <laughs> tells us that the doctrine of God's word is right, right? Um, so now that, now that we've got that little bit of foundation, we've got this foundation for the doctrine of God's word. We've kind of worked our way through it. We, we've, we've allowed the Bible to uh, speak for itself, so to speak, right? We, we put the Bible, so to speak, in the, um, in the hot seat, and we, uh, we allowed it to testify to itself in front of us. It, de it defended itself, and I think we can clearly see, at least I can clearly see, I hope you can too, that the doctrine of God's word 
that we've talked about is definitely the right set of prescription glasses, right? So we should be able to see clearly as we look at Psalm 119. And as we think about how Jesus brings all of this to life. Again, that's, that's the big question at the end. Now, Psalm 119, uh, just by show of hands, how many of y'all have ever read it? There's a few of us. I love Psalm 119. Now, truth be told, I love Psalms, period. Um, but Psalm 119, I mean, it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. Um, I'm sure some of you, if you know me, have known me for long enough, you, you probably feel a little sense of anxiety right now. Um, yeah, there's a few of you nodding your heads. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the fact that Psalm 119 has 176 verses in it, that's probably why some of you are like, what is going on? Well, I mean, truth be told, here's what you could do. I was talking to my wife about this a couple weeks ago when, we were, when I was studying through it. She's like, you better tell these people. You better tell these people that they need to get ready for like a book of Nehemiah kind of a sermon. Because if, you, if you're familiar with Nehemiah, I think that they all stand for eight hours while the preachers preach. And I see no smiles in the audience about this idea. <laughs> so I, she did warn me to warn you. So you know, if we got here in less than 45 minutes, it's, um, it'll be a miracle. But it, it's probably also because she warned me. Um, 176 verses in Psalm 119. I, that was my thought too. <laughs> I, I, I read through Psalm 119 out loud and timed myself. And just kind of reading at a normal, kind of a thoughtful pace and not trying to rush my way through it. It took me 25 minutes to read it. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's good. It's rich. It, it's powerful. And as I read through and as I studied through it, and I kept thinking, man, God, you kind of brought me to Psalm 119. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why you would do this. Like, it's hard for me to preach through three verses in 45 minutes, let alone 176 verses. Um, but as I began to sift through the psalm, um, what I was doing was I was sitting at my desk, and, and I was underlining, and I'm circling, I'm praying, I'm contemplating. I mean, I think I sat maybe for about four, almost five hours, praying my way through Psalm 119, and it's, that's a rich experience. If you've, never, if you've never been afforded the three to four to five hour time to study and to soak in Psalm 119, I just encourage you. I hope that you would someday. Because it's a powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing to do. Um, I begin sifting through it. I begin underlining, praying my way. It's a fascinating uh, set of scriptures though, right? It's 176 verses long. Um, it's roughly the center of the Bible, which is fascinating too when you think about that. Um, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible too. Um, and <laughs> it's all about the Bible, okay? Um, David, who, who is the author of this psalm, um, uses a number of words and phrases to refer to God's word. Uh, it'll be up on the screen for you. Um, look at these words and word phrases that David uses all throughout Psalm 119. He, he uses these words and phrases like the law, your testimonies. Um, he says, you know, he uses the phrase his ways, referring to God's ways, um, or your, your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, your righteous rules, your word, the rules of your mouth, your promise. These are the words and the phrases that he uses. You know how many times it's used? 174 times in 176 verses. Isn't that kind of fascinating? Like, 
I don't know, sometimes, again, a little bit of a geek out moment, I feel like. Like, these are little things that I find, and I, and I find those little, um, those little facts, and I go, wow, almost every verse of Psalm 119 references itself, basically. References God's Word. References the Bible. Now, I, I share all those things, and, and, and the logical question that you should be asking right now um, is who cares, <laughs> right? Like, really? It's okay to ask that question. And in fact, we should always ask that question, who cares? What difference is any of that going to make? Because, I mean, I can go around all day long and spout off all the information that I have about the Bible, and, like, is it really going to make any transformational difference in our lives? That's where we need to get to. As I thought about that question, I thought about... I thought about the teenager, right, struggling to get through school. Or I thought about, you know, a single parent trying to make it through a day. Married couple, maybe fighting in the car on the way to church, right? Um, facing some big issues in their marriage. Maybe it's um, somebody dealing with, like, guilt and shame of some kind of secret sin. Or maybe somebody trying to recover from some kind of abuse. The question is, how is this information, how is this psalm, and this doctrine we've talked about, how's it going to be helpful to you? So I'm praying my way through that at my desk, and I think the Lord really drew my attention to that word promise um, all throughout the text. Um, the word promise appears in Psalm 119 roughly 12 different times. Okay, So would everybody with me just say 12 times? Very good. So 12 times throughout Psalm 119, you find this word promise. And when I, when I kind of realized that, I, I knew in that moment that's what I needed to preach. I needed to preach about God's promise because that's what God's word is. God's word is his promise. Like what more do we really need today? What more could you and I need regardless of what walk of life we're in right now or what scenario or circumstance we're facing? What more do we need to hear other than this? The word of God is his promise. And it's his promise to ransom and to redeem and to adopt and to restore broken and sinful rebels just like you and me, right? So here's what I did with Psalm 119. I selected the verses that speak about God's promise. It'd be very hard for you to follow along in your Bibles. <laughs> but I did organize it together. And what's fascinating is the way that it actually flows when you take all those verses that speak to God's promise and you put them together like it's one cohesive chunk. So I'm going to read all these selections together as though it is one set of, of reading, right? It will begin in verse 38. We're going to end in verse 154. But again, the word promise is only mentioned 12 times. So it'll be on the screen for you to follow along with. And if you would like all of the references from my study on it, I'd be happy to screenshot you a picture afterwards, or you may even get an email with some of this stuff in it. But here's, here's what Psalm 119 says about God's promise. Listen to this. David says, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. 
I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I just it's good, isn't it? Can I pause and pray before we go any further? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the doctrine of your word. Thank you for, um, thank you for revealing to us that your word is true and trustworthy and without error. Lord, thank you for showing us that your word is your promise. Lord, I, I think that probably each of us comes into this room recognizing that we walk through uh, a life that is full of broken promises. We, um, I think each of us have probably experienced the pain and the hurt, the damage of what broken promises do. Um, and yet, Lord, what we're hearing here is that your word is your promise, that your promise is your word, and that you can be trusted. God, as we think about this, I pray that your spirit would um, come and, and, and illuminate what we've been studying and help us to see how Jesus brings all of this to life. I trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, when you think about these verses in Psalm 119, what's David doing? David is literally referencing the word of God as the promise of God 12 different times, right? What does he say? He says that the confirmation of God's promise will simply cause fear or it'll cause reverence in, 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 in people that hear it. Reverence for the Lord. Um, he reveals that God's promise actually has to do with God's faithful and loving salvation, right? Right? And, and, he, and he says that this salvation actually gives him an answer for his enemies uh, who would taunt him. You know what that's like to be taunted by an enemy and to feel like you have no answer for that enemy. You feel that fear in those moments. I think of the story of David, right? Like he's taunted by Goliath and yet he knew whom he served. His trust was in his father. 
His trust was in the God whose promises can be trusted, whose word can be trusted. And so when, when our enemies, who are our enemies? Satan, sin, death. You get taunted by those enemies, right? Uh, Satan comes and accuses you. Sin comes and tempts you. Death comes and tries to intimidate you. You feel like, what, what do I have to say to those enemies? And David says, and God's word is exactly what I need when I'm taunted by my enemies. Because God's promise brings comfort in the midst of any kind of torment that we walk through. How does it bring that kind of comfort? It brings that comfort because it is the promise of life. The promise of life is contained in God's word. It's the promise of life by the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God. When God's word speaks to me and to you and says, I give you what you do not deserve, and I withhold what you do deserve, and my love can be absolutely trusted because it's steadfast, not reckless. Because of that, you can trust me. That's the kind of hope and the kind of comfort that is received from God's word. It's that promise of salvation that actually brings a real sense of hope for David. It's that promise of salvation that brings a sense of hope for you and I when we are in despair. It is, it is God's salvation that is righteous and perfect and trustworthy. That is his promise over us. It's God's promise for David that keeps his steps in line. Think about that. God's word, his promise, keeps David's steps in line and keeps his enemies at bay. And David recognizes, and he says it here, that his enemies have actually rejected God's word, rejected his promise. Don't we live in that day and age? Haven't we always lived in that day and age? Where God's enemies would reject his word. Isn't that the place that you and I were in? If you're here and you've trusted in Jesus and you've received salvation, isn't that the place that you and I once were in when we rejected his word, rejected his promise, tried to make it into something that it absolutely is not, and yet in his grace and his mercy, he comes and he saves you and he opens your eyes. He gives you a brand new heart as he adopts you and, and makes you his own. And now your, your eyes are open to go, man, I trust in God's word. I, I trust in his promise. This is what keeps David's enemies at bay. He says that God's word, his promise has been tested. And it's been found to be absolutely true. And because of that, David moves on. And he says that he chews on God's word, God's promises day and night. Because he trusts that God himself will be what? He'll be the advocate for him. He will advocate for him. He, God will actually be the one who will plead his case in the courtroom of heaven. I mean, you think about that image. On the one hand, when you recognize, when we recognize how sinful and dirty and broken we really are, we have no right whatsoever to stand in front of a perfect and holy God in heaven. Because he's perfect, he's righteous, and he's just. And yet, because of Christ, right? Because of what Jesus did at that cross, and because of God the Father's saving work in your life if you've trusted in him, 
you now get to walk into the courtroom of heaven with David and know and trust that God himself, the one whom you and I have actually offended and sinned against, he's going to be the one that steps into that space by the power of the Spirit, right? And he's going to advocate and defend our cause. It's a, it's a crazy picture. That's the picture of the gospel, that God would lay down the life of his son for his very enemies. You don't see this anywhere but here. There's no religion. There's no man-made book. There's nothing other than the gospel that gives us this picture that somebody who, has, who was perfect and has been offended and sinned against would give his very own son to pay the price and the penalty for his enemies so that they could become his children. It's nuts. The only other question to ask is, what do you think this promise was that David was speaking about? Now, we've summarized it, right? We've summarized it as God's word. Um, God's promise is God's word, right? So I'm going to ask this in the form of a question and see if you all will answer me. What is God's promise? Okay, let me ask it again. What is God's promise? Okay, what is God's word? His promise, okay. So I just want to make sure we're grasping this central thought as we weave our way through all of this. But the question still becomes, even with that summarizing statement, all the information, what was the promise that David is actually referring to in Psalm 119? You put yourself in his shoes as the author. What was he referring to? And, again, sneak this question in there, how does Jesus bring that to life, right? I think if you were to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, you would find the promise that God made to David. Um, here's what God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16. He says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right? I think that's the promise. This is known as the, the Davidic promise. Um, God literally is promising that David's kingdom and bloodline will be eternal. And David's response to that promise is fascinating. In the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, part of the excerpts that I chose from is he says this. He says, God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. You, you have made your servant know it. You've made me know it, God. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Again, David's throne and bloodline is going to last forever. And the realization of that promise from God, what does it do for David? It gives him great strength and causes him to, to live and, and, to, and to pray in a way that is grateful towards God for that promise. Now you flip forward a few hundred years later, I think, and you read the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah builds on this Davidic promise. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, and you're probably familiar with this passage, he says this, he says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, 
and the government will rest upon his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it with justice and righteousness and from then on forevermore. And then you flip forward again out of the prophets in the Old Testament. You come into the Gospels and the, the, the angel Gabriel explains to Mary that her son Jesus will be the fulfillment of this promise. And he says that he, Jesus, will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his forefather David. That's in the Gospel of Luke. So again... When you pull all of this together, you see that the word of God is his promise. And his promise is what? Jesus. His promise was brought to life in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You think about these things that we know about Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, right? From John 1.1. He's the word of God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the promise of God in once again, the flesh. He is the manna that came down from heaven, right? Uh, no one can live on mere bread alone, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what do we feast on? What did David feast on day and night? It was this promise that there would be a Savior. There would be one who would come that would establish that throne and that bloodline for all of eternity. Jesus literally is the Word of God who sustains all things. So, we say that God's Word is His promise. <coughs> and His promise is none other than Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, returning for His bride to make all things new once and for all. Is that not a lot of information? Ask that question again. Why does any of this matter? Right? What difference will this make for any of us regardless of what place we're in here in life? If I, you know, I put myself in different shoes, if I try to do that, I don't even really necessarily have to, but if I try to put myself in different shoes or different folks that might be in this room, um, how do you summarize all of this in a way that um, comes together cohesively and gives us any kind of hope, right? I think there's a lot that's here. At the end of the day, I think what we're encouraged to do is to cling to Christ because he is the fulfillment of God's word, God's promise. There's the reason why. You know what the reason why is? The reason why is because Satan couldn't defeat him. Sin couldn't stain him. Death couldn't hold him in the grave. I, that excites me. Does that excite you? Satan couldn't defeat Jesus. Sin couldn't stain him. Death could not hold him in the grave. I mean, you think about the way that we walk through life. Specifically, think about the way that we have been walking through the last few years together as a society, as a, as a world full of people, right? And you think about the many things, the many um, barriers we have faced, but you think about what it's like to face the accusations of our enemy or, or to hear the tempting voice of sin or, or, or to face the shadow of death when it looms. You think about those three things and just facing those enemies day in and day out. Like the reality is I think that you and I will crumble under the accusations of our enemy. 
You and I will tap out sometimes when we hear the tempting voice of sin. We will cower in fear oftentimes when the shadow of death looms large in front of us. But think about it. When those days come, what do you have to hold on to? What do you have to hold on to? When those days come, just like they came for David, and and think about the story of David. Those days came just like they came for David, right? In his failure with Bathsheba. You think about that failure for a moment. In David's failure with Bathsheba. Or think about his cowardliness when dealing with his son Amnon. When his son raped his very own sister, how did David deal with that? Not well at first. He was an absolute coward. Think about David's fear when dealing with his son Absalom later, who was trying to dethrone him. David did not face these things well either. But I will say this. One thing I know about David, if you read the breadth of his writings and the depth of his writings, when those days came, and just like David, in Psalm 52, 51, Just like David, throughout his psalms, honestly, you can find that you can be restored. You can be renewed. You can be strengthened by the word of God, the promise of God, by the power of the spirit of God. As you cling to the perfect work of Christ and the bloody cross and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. Right? No secret, as I wrap this up, no secret, the world we live in is a jacked up mess, right? Anybody would agree with that? You know, the reality is that it's no secret that you and I are a jacked up mess. I mean, if you're here this morning and you don't think you're a jacked up mess, then we'll leave that to the Holy Spirit to deal with that, right? We lived in a jacked up world because we're jacked up people. Um, no matter how prim and proper we get, no matter how dressy we get on a Sunday morning, um, we still wake up a jacked up mess because of sin. I think about the last few years of um, navigating how you lead and how you live and how you relate. Um, especially when you think about this worldwide pandemic thing. Um, I think that what's happened over the last couple of years is the pressure of that has only really served to reveal uh, more of the deep brokenness inside of each of us and inside the world that we're living in. Think about some of these things specifically. Um, isolation has become easier to accept. If not easier to accept, it's, it's, in some regard, it's like it's forced, right? So that's just isolation. Think about the dark lines of relational division or distancing that have become more pronounced too. Everything right now is a black and white line to divide over. And that's scary. More division has never been good. Um, mental health issues, I think, are through the roof, if I'm reading the stats right. Um, addictions are skyrocketing if those stats are right and I think they are suicide numbers are rising over the last couple of years here's another one bankruptcy and personal debt man they've increased at an alarming rate in the world that we live in right now when I think about that and I look at those things it seems like Satan, sin and death have been having a heyday in our world doesn't it For me personally, over the last couple of years, I think I've sat in one hospital room after the next more times than I wanted to as I watched some loved ones die, people struggling to hold on to life, felt the pain personally of close family members rejecting Jesus, rejecting our family, walking away, living in dark, sinful lifestyles. 
Um, I've experienced the confusion of some people leaving our church family because they believe we didn't take COVID seriously enough. And then, <laughs> very confusing. On the other end, folks who have left because they think I committed some kind of sin by encouraging people to be cautious with health risks. It's like, you can't please anybody, nor should, nor should we live to please people anyways. Right? Um, talked more people off the suicide ledge uh, than I ever had before. Spent literally the last two years getting anonymous emails and messages from somebody who was very suicidal. Um, grieve my own personal failures. You know, when you put pressure on, sin and failure has a tendency to rise to the surface. Um, some of my longest, hardest sins that followed me around and tried to keep a hold, anger, lust, bitterness... Battled those, felt like bloody fisted sometimes. I don't know if you guys have that same feeling at times when you wrestle with your own sinful shortcomings. Found myself in some of those same desperate places that I think all of us have been in at times. So when I read these words from David, I can feel the desperation in his voice. That's what I feel. Um, I can feel that desperation, but I can also see him continuing to come back to the truth that God's word is his promise. And his promise is to ransom and to redeem and to adopt and to restore broken, sinful rebels just like you and I through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I've learned, and I'm still learning, that like David, I'm, I'm never going to find wholeness or security in my performance. Never going to find it in being accepted by others around me. Never going to find wholeness and security in getting my political leader into office. Never going to find it in minimizing the possibility of my death. Never going to find it there. The only place I'm going to find wholeness and security, like David, is in the shadow of a bloody cross where my Savior died for me. I'm going to find it in the doorway of that empty tomb where my Savior got the victory, right? I'm going to find it in light of the hope of heaven, the future that I can look forward to. See, that bloody cross and that empty tomb and that hope of heaven, that's, that's what's wrapped up in God's word. That's what's wrapped up all the way through the promise of God's word. This is where the saints throughout the centuries have found their wholeness and their security. This is where I believe David found it. And this is where you and I can find it as well. In the shadow of a bloody cross, in the doorway of an empty tomb, holding on to the hope of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is your promise that can be trusted. Thank you for embodying your word in such a way that in such a way that we can put flesh and skin on the promise you've given us to ransom and to redeem and to adopt and to restore and to make new. Lord, as we close, I pray that you would come and encourage and strengthen, uh, rebuke and correct even as needed. Come and fill this place with your spirit and draw our attention to the work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. I trust you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you?
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 